This message comes from NPR sponsor Xfinity. Some things are slow, like snail races. Other things are fast, like Xfinity XFi. Get fast speeds, even when everyone is online. Working to make Wi-Fi simple, easy, awesome. More at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. As the summer blockbuster season comes to an end, we move on to a new season for movies, the one known for award contenders. We're excited for a whole bunch of new movies this fall, and today we talk about as many of them as we can, from the big studio flicks to the festival favorites and everything in between. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. Today we dive into our 2018 fall movie preview. We will be right back, so don't go anywhere. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Georgetown School of Continuing Studies, where you can earn a master's degree or professional certificate downtown or online. All options, all Georgetown. Learn more at scs.georgetown.edu. Welcome back. You have already met Linda Holmes. With us in the studio is Glenn Weldon of NPR's Arts Desk. Hi, Glenn. Hey, Stephen. And in our fourth chair is NPR's movie critic, Bob Mondello. Hi, Bob. Hey, good to be here. Now, all three of you actually attended the recent Toronto International Film Festival, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and have seen a lot of the big movies that we are going to be talking about for the next few months as award season rolls around. So you guys actually have a a huge head start on me, which is why I am hosting. (laughs) I am merely asking questions like, huh, and what did you think? Mm -hmm. So we're going to start with kind of the biggest movies that we're likeliest to be talking about in the next few months. So we're going to do these kind of quickly because you're going to hear full-length episodes of Pop Culture Happy Hour containing our hottest takes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for this, we're going to go around the table and talk about some of the big ones, starting with A Star is Born, opening October 5th, Glenn Weldon. Tell us what you think of A Star is Born. Oh, this is going to be huge. This is a story we've seen before. This is like the third remake of this classic tale of a performer on the skids uh, who meets a performer on the rise. They cross over. There's a romance. This story is on rail. So Bradley Cooper injected a lot of authenticity and sort of an improvisational feel to a lot of these scenes to keep it from being, you know, as rigid as it could be. Uh, turns out Lady Gaga can sing. Uh, and, <laughs> Don't say. And she's a real star. And uh, this is going to be huge. She's kind of great. She really is. They're both very charismatic. It's Mm -hmm. a ton of fun. All right. Well, that's A Star is Born. Linda, tell us about First Man. So First Man is directed by Damien Chazelle, who you might remember from La La Land and Whiplash. And it stars Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong, who we check in with in 1961 as he's about to begin his time with uh, NASA. And then we check in midway as he's on the track to the moon landing. And then you go to the moon landing. So you have kind of these three chapters of his life. I think Gosling is very good in it. I think Chazelle is really talented. And this is a much less... Neil Armstrong is not presented as a know-it-all bully. Mm. So it's kind of Chazelle getting out of his fascination. <laughs> does he tell us about jazz? He does not. It's get, it's well, him, they play some. They play some. They play a little bit, but it's it's him getting out of his fascination with men who turn out really to know everything. Mm-hmm. And I think he gets at a more interesting vision of kind of how men are and how fathers are and how men were at this time in American history in this slice of the culture. So it's really wonderful. I also think it's a really good astronaut movie. Liked it a lot. Great. I, th- I think that's kind of fair. I am getting a rep for not liking this movie because I didn't like it as much as other people. But it's uh, it's it's nice. It it kind of works. It's uh, it's big and it's very 
gorgeous. I mean, as you're watching it, it's, it's really beautiful. I mean, Damien Chazelle knows how to shoot a scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, th- that is a very stylish director. All right, Bob, tell us about If Beale Street Could Talk. I'm excited about this one. Tell us about it. it. Yeah, it is, it is. This one. I have seen a lot of movies in my time. I don't think I've ever seen love depicted as persuasively on screen as wow. in this movie. It's just gorgeous. It's a James Baldwin story. And it's directed by the guy who made Moonlight, Barry Jenkins, and it is exquisite. It's beautiful to watch. It's it's a rending story and occasionally very funny along the way. And it's very intimate and it's about a family dealing with the incarceration of, uh, uh, of a character. It's, it's all set right around 1970. It is an incredibly moving story. It's just, uh, it's it's extraordinary. Yeah. As Bob said, it follows Baldwin's interest in justice, but in this case, it really portrays that through the loss of happiness when young lovers are disrupted in their lives by systemic injustice. Basically. And you could teach a, an entire film course on the use of color. In oh, oh, yeah. Just amazing. <laughs> Very so pretty. So pretty. <laughs> I mean, one recurring theme we're seeing with a lot of these movies is these are big directors. These right. are directors we are excited about. Right. And if you take the the last one Bob mentioned, which is Beale Street, and the one I mentioned, which is First Man, you potentially have another <laughs> another standoff between Barry Jenkins and Damien Chazelle, yeah. uh-huh. uh, as you saw with Moonlight and La La Land, when one of them won the Academy Award and the other one didn't, and then <laughs> did. <laughs> well, no, yeah, we're, we're getting a sense of some awards season themes. Now, mm. now speaking of awards season, Timothy Chalamet? been nominated for some awards in mm-hmm. his in his brief time on this planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, he stars in Beautiful Boy with another Oscar nominee of the past, Steve Carell. Mm-hmm. Glenn, what did you think of uh, Beautiful Boy? Uh, it's a really good portrait of uh, how addiction destroys or at least incredibly challenges not just the addict but those who love him or her. The thing about addiction narratives is that we know what's going to happen. So what you have to do is inject all kinds of specificity into that storyline because it's a cycle, right? And, and it just recurs and recurs and recurs. And they do some smart things. I don't think it's nearly as effective as it could be, but I, I, you can't deny these performances. What Chalamet really conveys is how charming an addict can be to get what he or she wants. And he does that incredibly well. We see a very dark side to the kind of swoony version of Chalamet we saw last year in uh, Call Me By Your Name. And also that he's still lovable. Even I mean, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. it, it allows him to still be human and lovable and genuinely trying, even though this is so punishing on him and on his family. I think it tries to be very fair to families and to people who have dealt with addiction. So I liked, I liked it quite and a bit. And Carell is terrific mm-hmm. as, as the dad. He really is. The women in this movie don't do as well for mm-hmm. some reason. They're, they're there and they the mostly react. The characters don't. Yeah. yeah. The, it has Maura Tierney in it, who's a wonderful actor. Yeah. Yeah. doesn't get to do as much as I wish, but yeah, it's it's got some wonderful work in it. Mm-hmm. I would say I'm looking forward to that one, but it sounds bleak. It is bleak, but it's fair. Mm-hmm. Nice. All right. Um, Bob, tell me about Roma. Roma is Alfonso Cuaron, the guy who made Gravity and Itumama Tambien, and it is a story about sort of a fictionalized version of his own childhood in a household with a cleaning lady who is a live-in person who the kids all adore. It's in black and white. It is one of the most exquisitely shot films I've ever seen. Wow. I this, this one just blew me away. There are shots in this that you just think that's not even possible, what he just did. There's one at the beach that I will not spoil, but that is extraordinary. There's, there's, <laughs> there's one with a wedding You've just heard about the possibility of a divorce, 
And there's a wedding going on under a gigantic crab claw that is the most <laughs> extraordinary shot. The story is engaging. The filmmaking is spectacular. I agree with that assessment completely. Wow. Mm-hmm. Boy, we are in for some good movies. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was a good festival. Well, good you know, the, the, the sort of thing that's hanging over us is that we were all at the festival for the first week. Right. And the film that won the uh, the Audience Choice Award there is Green Book, which opened right after we left. Yeah, it came to the, came to the festival when we were already gone. Viggo Mortensen, Mahershala Ali, also Whoa. from Moonlight. And in a story that looks a lot like a Driving Miss Daisy, Daisy. kind of story, oh. I have to admit. It's a sensitive, apparently uplifting of the human spirit, directed by, naturally, Peter Farelli yeah. of uh, Dumb and Dumber. So I don't understand it. But, but what's, I... what's kind of amazing here is that the second and third pictures were If Beale Street Could Talk and... Roma. So the audience clearly sort of gets it. And so this picture must be pretty good to have beaten those. Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's another big favorite that I wanted to ask about. I I follow you guys on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And Linda, you were raving about Widows. I loved Widows. So Widows is a heist movie directed by Steve McQueen, who did 12 Years a Slave, co-written by him and Gillian Flynn of Gone Girl and wow. all that stuff. And Viola Davis plays the one of the widows, uh, several women who are left behind by kind of gangster-type husbands who die, and they are left to kind of make good on the husband's debts in order to remain safe. And so she has to pull off a heist to get the money to make them all safe. And so she becomes kind of a crime boss. The movie is stylish. It is exciting. It is the rare movie that I came out of, and I said this on Twitter, that I came out of thinking I would nominate that movie for Best Picture, and I would not be the least bit surprised if it made $250 million domestically. (laughs) It is a knockout of a blockbuster, and it is also extraordinarily good. And it takes advantage of Michelle Rodriguez, who's been in all the Fast and Furious movies, so she's an action movie veteran, Mm -hmm. Viola Davis herself, Cynthia Erivo is in it. There is such a wonderful mix of people, including Liam Neeson, who comes with all this action movie baggage, sure. who plays Viola Davis's husband, largely in flashbacks. Does he punch any wolves? Uh, he doesn't in this, but he does. As you say, he comes with this interesting, it's a, it's a really interesting piece of casting. I'm super excited about this movie, and I'm very excited for people to see it. It's shot beautifully. I loved it. Yeah, loved I, think, it. I think everybody's going to love it. It's a, it's, it. it's a great picture. Love wow. It. Wow. Okay. So people are going to love A Star is Born, First Man, If Beale Street Could Talk, Widows, Roma, and Beautiful Boy. That's fair. They're all really good. <laughs> and this other Dark Horse seventh movie yeah. that you guys haven't seen Green called Green Book. Green Book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is also supposed to be great. We don't know anything about it yet. We haven't seen it. Now, there are also like a bajillion other movies, yes. many of which are going to have giant Oscar campaigns, many of which are also Aquaman. Mm. Um, at least one of which <laughs> is also Aquaman. Now, what I wanted to get from you guys next... You guys each saw what? About two dozen movies in mm-hmm. across mm-hmm. six Roughly. days. Yep. You probably came out of this with a discovery, with something that you are singing the praises of that is not necessarily considered like an Oscar frontrunner, but something that you hope gets a lot of traction. Glenn, I'm going to start with you. Sure. I mean, this was an actual discovery. I walked into this thing not knowing what the hell I was going to get, and what I got was pretty great. Uh, it's called Freaks, and Neil Hirsch stars as a dad who has a seven-year-old daughter that he keeps inside the house because he assures her there are people outside who want to kill her. And starts off in horror and goes in a different 
place. And whenever that happens in a movie, whenever there's a twist, a lot of films just content to, to stop being interesting once the twist hits. This movie keeps doubling down, keeps innovating, uh, keeps getting stranger and stranger and more fun. And I really hope people see it. It's called Freaks. It's great. Thank you, Glenn. Bob, what's yours? There's a film that has the worst title in the world. It's called Capernaum. And that is the town in uh, on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus uh, allegedly uh, healed the sick. And that Alleg- has nothing... Allegedly. <laughs> and has nothing, nothing, our nothing, reporters, nothing. Our reporters have not confirmed. <laughs> it has absolutely nothing to do with the plot, which is about a boy in present-day Lebanon, a 12-year-old, who sues his parents for bringing him into a world so awful that they can't take care of him in. And it's Dickensian. It's it's this magnificent, enormous, sort of epic story in Lebanon, shot by Nadine Lebecki, who is a wonderful filmmaker who has made tiny pictures, like one set in a, in a beauty salon called Caramel. She's a wonderful director, but nothing she's done before suggested that she would do something that would work on this kind of an epic scale. It's just a wonderful movie. I like that you think that is the worst movie title ever. Capernaum. <laughs> Ca- what, is, what does Capernaum say to you? I mean, does it say anything about a, a, an 11, a 12-year-old boy who's... A place name like that can be a tough movie title because yeah. unless you know what it is, it can not say, not say much. I'm just sitting here like, dirty grandpa? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's up there. Okay, well. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, Linda, give me a discovery. Uh, this was a tough choice. Uh, I loved a lot of films this year, but... I want to talk about a documentary because we haven't talked about any documentaries yet. So I want to talk about a documentary called Free Solo, uh, which is about a guy who decided to climb El Capitan in Yosemite. But free climbing, free solo climbing, meaning it's just a dude, no help, no ropes, just climbing up the side of a mountain. So if you looked, you would just see him. (laughs) You would just see a guy just climbing up the side of the mountain. And so some of it is about following the training that's involved in this climb. Some of it is about his girlfriend and the way that your relationships are affected if you basically enter into something where you just climb up and hope you don't die. That really is all it is. There's nothing that will help you if you fall. You just have to hope that you don't fall because you'll die. And in fact, a lot of people who participate, they say this in the film, a lot of people who participate in this particular activity die doing it. Uh It's it's not uncommon. (laughs) And so it talks about what kind of a person he is. It actually shows you at one point a brain scan that explains Mm. kind of who he is and some ways in which his brain's unusual. I got to see it in a big IMAX theater it is going to have a theatrical release here in the next uh, few weeks. I've seen ads for it. Yeah, and if you get a chance to see it in a theater, I do think that's where it will be the most effective. But when it comes around on screen on streaming, when it comes around on streaming, um, it will also be really effective. I almost <laughs> said when it comes around on screaming, which is <laughs> fairly maybe accurate. Yeah. Fairly maybe accurate, but uh, very much liked it. It's called Free Solo. Wow, I had the same reaction that Glenn did, which was nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how most people feel, and it's like the only difference between this and regular rock climbing is just the possibility of dying. It's like they don't really pretend that there's any real difference except that you give up the ropes. And so it's sort of, the guy talks about you have to have this different level of focus and all that stuff, and it's because you'll die. That's what the <laughs> sort of the point of doing it is. He's in, for three minutes, a movie called Mountain that I reviewed a, a, a few weeks ago, and those three minutes are... Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. you, you don't breathe during them. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a classic conflict, really. Man versus <laughs> gravity. 
<laughs> man versus common freaking sense. And I should I should say his name is Alex Honnold. And if you have read about free solo climbing, you've probably read about him. He has been on some magazine covers and things of that nature. All right. Well, that sounds harrowing and good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, I wanted to touch on just kind of other general takeaways you guys had from the festival. I mean, one thing that I noticed looking at this docket was the prevalence of movies directed by actors. There's yeah. a big Paul mm-hmm. Dano movie. There's a big Jonah Hill movie. Uh, obviously, Bradley Cooper directs A Star is Born. What did you guys think of some of those movies? I did want to talk about Wildlife, which is Paul Dano's movie, which he co-wrote with the actress Zoe Kazan. And it stars Jake Gyllenhaal and Carey Mulligan as a couple, sort of with the marriage falling apart. It's a period piece that takes place in, I want to say... 60. Yeah, 60. And it's based on a, on a book. But I think that... He does a beautiful job directing it. If you were going to watch another one besides Beale Street for use of color and how pretty Mm. it is, I think it's stunning. I think the performances are great. And I think he shows a ton of kind of sensitivity and intelligence visually in how he puts a film together. I thought it was great. Jonah Hill's I did not like. Mid-90s. Jonah Hill's movie is called Mid-90s. It's basically... I mean, my flip take on it was basically like, have you considered the upside of toxic masculinity, which is that it really being being brought into it really makes boys feel included. Um, but I, it's like it's like skater kids. It's right? skater kids. And I do understand the the need to belong and what he's trying to get at. For me, it wasn't effective. But um, but there are many people who have really loved it. And I I'm not the audience. So. Yeah, and this is also, we're we're looking at two different uh, addiction narratives. We have Beautiful Boy, which we already talked about. Mm -hmm. The other one is Ben is Back, which stars Lucas Hedges and Julia Roberts. And those performances you cannot fault. But the thing I'd say about Ben is Back is it takes a turn midway through and becomes like a crime story in a weird way. (laughs) And and it goes Hollywood. It's like, what if Beautiful Boy, but Hollywood. Uh, In a way that doesn't necessarily feel satisfying. But, I mean, it's they're both really good looks and really intimate portraits of of addiction. Yeah, and the first half of Ben is Back is a family drama that I liked, and mm-hmm. then the second half is that kind of chase weird crime thing that I didn't mm-hmm. think was, was satisfying. Well, now, obviously, this is a fall movie preview. There are a lot of, like, large-scale titles. You got your Ralph Breaks the Internet. You got your Mary Poppins Returns out in December. Some of these big titles... We're going to push aside a little bit because we're kind of talking about what you guys saw at the Toronto mm-hmm. International Film Festival. So instead of talking about you know Aquaman and Fantastic Beasts and whatnot, I want to ask you guys each about a few movies that you guys saw that looked interesting, that looked like they may be part of this awards discussion and yeah. the discussion of some of the really good movies that are coming out in the remainder of 2018. I'm going to start with the front runner, uh, which is the Gary Hart movie. Yeah, uh, Glenn, tell me about that. Well, if you buy into this film's theory that the Gary Hart campaign changed politics and the coverage of politics forever, uh, you're going to have a good time in this film. If your brain keeps offering up caveats and counterexamples like mine did, uh, (laughs) you're still going to have a good time. It's a good on process. It's very kind of West Wingy. And you can spend some time looking at, at Hugh Jackman's Notable wig. (laughs) Notable (laughs) Gary Hartman. Gary Hart wig. I I was struck now, for those who are too, maybe too young to remember, Gary Hart ran for president in 88 Mm -hmm. and was brought down by a sex scandal. I didn't think Hugh Jackman looks very much like Gary Hart. He doesn't. He doesn't. The movie doesn't have much of an idea of who Gary Hart is. The Mm -hmm. movie really is better to me when it's about some of the folks on the campaign trail, some of the journalists who were involved in this story. It's kind of fun to me when it's a campaign trail movie. 
mm-hmm. when it becomes Jason Reitman's sort of lecture on how terrible it is that we lost great man Gary Hart, which is what it <laughs> felt to me like he was saying, but I don't think he demonstrated. I think yeah. he told and didn't show mm. that it was some great loss that Gary Hart couldn't be president. So I think for the same reasons as Glenn, I just didn't find the thesis to be persuasive. Gotcha. All right. See what happens there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, How about Can You Ever Forgive Me? Yeah. Can You Ever Forgive Me stars Melissa McCarthy in the based on a true story about a woman named Lee Israel, who was what I would consider kind of a writer in the medium place. If you watch The Good Place, Uh, (laughs) she's not a she's not a washout as a writer. She's not a huge success as a writer. She's had some successful work. She has an agent, but they don't want to take her ideas. She's a biographer and she wants to do a biography of Fanny Bryce, which her agent insists nobody will care about. So what she winds up doing is becoming a literary forger, and she begins to create fakes of letters from famous writers. And it's about as close to a victimless crime as you can get when you consider that she did rip off some collectors, but they're people who take it upon themselves to collect letters that were meant to be private. And so I don't, you know, my my sympathy for them is a little bit limited. It's largely a comedy, although it's also very warm about her relationship with a another old friend of hers, uh, played by Richard E. Grant. It's kind of about them as two queer New York aging people who don't know where they belong in the world anymore, and they feel a little rejected in her She comes off quite sympathetically as somebody who's sort of fighting back against insistence upon her own obsolescence. Mm. Um, Melissa McCarthy, I think, is great in it. Richard E. Grant is great in it. Um, And it's a great New York movie. I see Oscar nominations. I mean, I I, I would be surprised if she didn't get nominated, actually. She's pretty amazing and never tries to come across as sympathetic. She's curmudgeonly. She's unpleasant. She's like all the things that... uh, that you don't think of Melissa McCarthy as. Well, and it's Melissa McCarthy not being giggly and sunny, as Mm -hmm. she's sometimes been, but also not being a grotesque, as she's sometimes been, and I think enjoys playing sometimes. Here, she's just like a regular lady who's down on her luck a little bit. And I I liked it very much. All right. So that's uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? I want to touch on one more. Linda, you saw The Hate You Give. I did. Based on Angie Thomas's book, a very successful YA novel, it is about a young girl played by Amandala Sternberg who, you know, becomes an activist based on having seen a friend of hers die in a police shooting. And the film, I think the end of it is a little too neat, which I think is something people have complained about mm-hmm. in the book as well. But it is moving in many places. I think the performances are strong. And I think that to have any narrative about young people coming out of all the pain around police violence and the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement, I think I think the film has a lot of valuable things to say about those issues, even if maybe it's a little tidy at the end. Okay. Well, we can't possibly have gotten to everything. Nope. There are some big awardsy movies coming out that did not screen at Toronto mm-hmm. that uh, we're going to be talking about in the months to come. There's a big Coen Brothers movie, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Mm-hmm. There's a Dick Cheney biopic mm-hmm. uh, with Christian Bale directed by Adam McKay, who did the big short. There's tons and tons more movies coming out, but we want to know what fall movies you are excited about. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com PCHH, or you can tweet us at PCHH when we come back. It will be time to talk about what is making us happy this week, so come right back. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor, NBC. NBC is featuring a new comedy from executive producer Amy Poehler, every woman's imaginary best friend. It's I Feel Bad, all about how women feel bad every single day. Career, kids, marriage. I Feel Bad is for women who supposedly have it all, yet can't remember the last time they took a shower. Don't miss the big night of comedy with Superstore, The Good Place, Will and Grace, Then I Feel Bad, your personal escape, coming Thursday, October 4th on NBC. Support also comes from Wix.com, a web platform for creating your own professional website. With Wix, whether it's your first time creating a website or you're a longtime pro, you can do it yourself. Choose from hundreds of stunning templates or start from scratch with drag-and-drop technology and powerful web features. Join over 125 million people already using Wix to create their own websites. Go to wix.com to create yours today. So what will you create? Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It is time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Linda Holmes, you get to start. That's, what's make, what's making you, you happy? Thank you so much, buddy. So what is making me happy this week? The Hallmark Channel, <laughs> which you know I am devoted to. You can just cut it off right there. As, <laughs> as the holiday season rolls around, has unveiled its lineup of Christmas movies I believe there are 36. Oh, my goodness. Uh, now, that's across a couple of different channels, which doesn't make it any less ridiculous. But among those movies are several with leads who are black people. And if you watch a lot of Hallmark movies, mm-hmm. you know that's been a long time coming. Yeah. Not just as the friend or as the older person giving sage advice, <laughs> but as the leads who will potentially get to kiss once at the very end with their mouths closed, which is how it works in Hallmark <laughs> movies, just like it can be for Lacey Chabert or for your Danica McKellar or your Alicia Witt or whoever. Now you have your Tia Mowry, mm-hmm. your Tatiana Ali, and it seems to me like a great breakthrough. And I was so surprised because I thought they would have been shouting it from the rooftops. But I was incredibly pleased by that, honestly, truly. It was one of the few places where I had seen no progress really whatsoever. There are also a couple that have uh, Latinx leads, although those folks were in one at least last year, I think. Mm So there's been some progress on this front, but it's been extraordinarily slow. And so I just want to say better late than never. Over on the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> What's making Linda happy? Incrementalism. <laughs> <laughs> Incrementalism and happy holidays. <laughs> nice. Thank you, Linda Holmes. Glenn Weldon, what's making you happy this week, buddy? The Dragon Prince is a new animated series, Netflix original animated series, uh, which I resisted for a long time because, I mean, I'm sorry. It just, everything I saw about this thing was like it's trying to bend it like the last airbender and i'm sorry <laughs> i i you know i i i served with the last airbender i knew the last airbender the last airbender was a friend of mine and senator you are no last airbender so i sat there with my arms crossed and i started and i was like what's going to happen here and a stentorian voice begins for thousands of years dragons and elves and i was like i'm weakening i'm already weakening <laughs> And then uh, the same voiceover is like, and the six sources of magic. And I was like, you can't throw a taxonomy of magic at me. That's not fair. That's really not fair. And then they threw up a map and I'm like, okay. And I just rolled over and exposed my belly and uh, I'm in. This thing is really good. Uh, The animation is kind of a low uh, frame rate, which some people turn some people off. I was fine with it. It's fun. It's funny. 
Does somebody in the first episode say, winter is coming eventually? Yeah, that's a little too cute. And, uh, you know, during the combat scene, somebody mentioned sweeping the leg. So it's a little bit of that. It's like, you just just focus your eye. Focus your eye on the ball. But it's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, it it is co-created by one of the writers from Last Airbender. So, I mean, and it does have that feel. And uh, it's matter-of-factly inclusive, including a a character with prominent freckles, which (laughs) represent (laughs) my people. So, it's yeah, it's a lot of fun. That's The Dragon Prince on Netflix. Thank you, Glenn. Glenn Weldon, Bob Mondello. I'm going to go ever so slightly meta with this. I am suddenly aware of understudies in a way that I have not been. You got a picture. I'm a critic. I go to opening night. On opening night, understudies generally don't perform. You almost always see the stars as they are advertised in the program. And I went to see Passion at Signature Theater this past weekend. And I'm seeing it several weeks into the run because just a variety of reasons and I show up and there's a little slip of paper in the in the program that says the part of Giorgio that's the male lead in the show is going to be played tonight by Greg Mayhew and I wasn't expecting Greg Mayhew I was expecting the guy who was originally cast and and who got the reviews that were so favorable for the show so I'm watching and the very first notes from this singer Greg Mayhew were so Gorgeous, <laughs> mm. and I thought, oh, we're going to be fine. Oh. And I, ha- I have literally not seen very many understudies in my life. And I realized, you know, Shirley MacLaine got her start as an understudy. It created her career. It's happened in musicals, in movies yeah. for years. You know, you the star breaks her leg, and you know, Ruby Keeler goes on instead. But I just didn't accept that. An understudy is going to be trying so much harder. They actually gave Mayhew the final bow. And usually that goes to a different character. I thought, well, that's it's kind of justified. The audience was crazy about it and, and stood, and it was it was very exciting. So anyway, the glories of theater have always been glorious, but there is something very special about somebody doing a part that he or she doesn't do every night and gets to explore freshly with an audience and it was a wonderful performance. That's one thing we encountered when we saw Hamilton. There was an understudy Angelica right. and mm-hmm. she was a she was a knockout. She yeah. was fantastic. And this is something that you know, I've heard time and again particularly with Hamilton where people know that cast recording mm-hmm. so well and then come in and like oh this new Jefferson doesn't look anything like David Diggs but he's amazing mm-hmm. on Broadway in the theater. There are lots of good actors. <laughs> it's often someone who almost got the role. So right. It's, so it's, you know, or could have almost gotten the roles. I agree. It's wonderful. I'm yeah. so happy Bob brought this up because nice. I agree with this totally. It's a great pick. All right. So this show is dropping on Friday. I'm going to assume that it's been a long week. <laughs> <laughs> we're taping on Monday. We're taping on, we're taping on Monday. And there was a tweet uh, that I saw over the weekend that was something like, next week has been so exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I sat down, I'm like, God, what is making me happy? What am I going to talk about? I was looking on September 21st on Twitter. And the comedian and writer uh, Demi Adijuibe. Mm-hmm two years ago, posted a video of himself dancing to the Earth, Wind, and Fire song, September. Now, September 21st, Maurice White references, do you remember the 21st day of September? And it is chosen as a random date. 
over time, September 21st <laughs> has become a generalized day of celebration in association with this song. <laughs> so Demi Adijuive dancing to this song two years ago is this incredibly charming thing because he's just dancing in what looks like his apartment wearing a t-shirt that says September 21st on it. Yep. And, it's so, and it's so cute and funny and sweet. Now last year he revisits the idea. He does it again and this time it's a big red curtain and he comes out and he dances so sweetly in front of this curtain and it's so funny and he's adding little, little flourishes and tricks to the performance and this year, on September 21st, he comes back for a third time. You just have to see it. Yeah, don't it, spoil it. I'm not even going to spoil it. You think of me as this stoic bruiser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you think of me as kind of a roughneck, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I had absolutely no ability to control the pleasure centers of my brain and the being moved by something beautiful pleasures of my brain. It is so wonderful. Cr- you cried is what you're I trying cried. to say. Shut up. <laughs> I just felt like you, I was like, spit it out. You cried. Know, right? That's what I you're cried. trying to say. Don't talk about your pleasure centers. It's creepy. I, I needed these little videos. A couple of them obviously have been floating around for a uh-huh. year or two. If you haven't seen them, watch them in order. You probably, I'm just going to put this out there as a prediction. You probably need this right now. <laughs> I am so appreciative. You clearly, he is a source of good in the universe. He has written for The Good Place. He uh-huh. was on the Gilmore Guys podcast. Demi Adijuibe is on Twitter at Electro Lemon. Uh, very much worth a follow. That brings us to the end of our show. <laughs> uh, you can find all of us on Twitter. You can find me at I Dislike Steven. You can find Linda at Linda Holmes. You can find Glenn at G.H. Weldon. And you can follow Bob at Bob underscore Mandela. <laughs> <laughs> Bob underscore Mandela, Linda. You can follow our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy. Our producer, Vincent Acavino at V. Acavino. She is still dancing. And our producer, Emeritus and music director, Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif. That's K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello, Come In, provides the music you are bobbing your head to right now. Thanks to all of you for being here. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> you wanted to say body. I know you wanted to say <laughs> Thanks for listening. And if you have a second and you are so inclined, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people to find the show. We will see you all right back here next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. I can cry. I just talked to John Batiste, music director and band leader on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He did the interview at the piano. I can slide. You can find it now in the Fresh Air feed.